there was a very severe storm. And when I arrived, I realized that the president was taken and hosted in a kind of house, which was at the top of the mountain. And climbing that mountain, you could see cascades everywhere. Then seeing a, a very old man there, he was reserved because he could not believe that I was coming from the Organization of African Unity. He thought I was a French intelligence service agent. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today was mistaken for a French agent by an African president who'd just been overthrown and has managed to convince an unelected president to step down from power. Ambassador Sai Jinnit, former African Union Commissioner for Peace and Security, seasoned UN mediator, and now special advisor to the African Center for the Constructive Resolution of Disputes. Welcome to the Mediator Studio. Welcome, thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. I'd like to take you back to Algeria under French rule. You were born on the year the Algerian War of Independence started. What was the situation of your family, particularly in relation to the struggle that was going on at the time? I was born in a mountainous village on the seaside. And when I opened my eyes, actually, I found myself in a camp, in a concentration camp. They brought all the inhabitants of the villages in the mountains surrounding the French military camp. And to prevent them from supporting the FLN combatants, this is where I grew up, with the military camp facing the house of my grandfather. And you mentioned the Algerian resistance, the FLN. I understand that your family was also involved in that struggle for independence. Well, yes. My uncle actually was killed during the revolution. And my uncle, the brother of my mother, was of one of those uh, prominent freedom fighters in our region. And I'm told that he used to come and visit my family in the night. Actually, he was not visiting the family. He was coming to collect information and more importantly, some foods and other stuff that my father was collecting because my father was part of the FLN system, but part of their intelligence network. That sounds incredibly risky. Yes, absolutely risky. That's why to prevent any incidents, I was sleeping, actually, as small as I was. I was sleeping with my grandmother, and not in my parents' room. And later on, I understood why, because since they had some night occupations, they didn't want to involve me in that. And that first-hand experience of a conflict and that trauma and injustice of colonial rule, do you think it shaped what you would do later on in life as a mediator? Definitely, because the trauma, I have seen a number of incidents. I mean, even one, two, three, four years, I have seen a number of incidents. One day, as I was sleeping with my grandmother, early morning, it was still dark. I heard a lot of noise in the compound. Somebody has come to take me from where I was sleeping with my grandmother. I was shaken by the people talking and voices uh, shouting. And a big man standing, silhouettes. I mean, you could not see the man because it was dark. And there was a torch. And then the torch directed at me. And then it was hard. You know, it was tough, you know, on my eyes. And then they were talking to my family. Most probably, I understood that later on, that they were asking about my uncle. Since the adults could not cooperate with them, they thought that a small child would tell them what he has seen in the night. But unfortunately for them, I didn't see anything. 
And how exactly did those experiences influence you later as a mediator? I think is the sense of revolt about injustice. Many Algerians will tell you the same story. I didn't know my uncle because he was killed. Even my parents were living far from me because they want to spare me of the consequences of what they were doing. And then actually there was another incident. You know, one day I was moving in the village and I met the same soldier who came and who talked to me about my uncle. They were looking for my father and then he took his knife and he told me, if you see him, we cut his head. I was shocked. I mean, why would you tell that to a small kid, you know? And uh, every time I uh, went to my grandfather, I told you that the house of my grandfather from there, you could have a view on the camp. And the small part of the, of the camp I could see is the place where the people, they were taken by the army for any reason. They were either beaten or tortured, depending on what they have against them. So the deep sense of injustice has been the main feeling throughout my life till today. I'd like to fast forward to your very first mediation experience in 1995 in the island state of Comoros off the coast of Southeast Africa. By this time, you're the chef de cabinet of the head of the Organization of African Unity, or OAU, and there's been a coup. President Johar has been overthrown and has been taken by France, a former colonial power, to the island of Réunion. And you have been sent there to mediate on behalf of the OAU. So you're in Réunion. What happens next? We could not allow, as the OAU, we cannot allow a democratically elected president to be removed by a coup. So therefore, we decided that we should mediate a solution. And part of that mediation would be to, of course, to bring back the president to his country. So the first thing first is to go to Comoro. I went to go to Comoro a couple of times. And of course, I had to go to see President Johar in Réunion. It was at the end of the, of the year. It was during uh, holidays, you know, between Christmas and New Year and after New Year. And there was a very severe storm, not a storm, cyclone, actually, during that year, end of 1995. So when I, I traveled in the region, it was quite chaotic because of the devastation of the cyclone. And when I arrived in Saint-Denis, I realized that the president was taken and hosted in one of Villazo's kind of house, which was at the top of the mountain in Réunion. And climbing that mountain in those conditions were really quite difficult and rather worrying. You could see cascades uh, everywhere, everywhere, cascades, cascades. And I was alone with my colleague, somebody from the OEU and the driver, and you could wonder what you were doing there at that time. The atmosphere was bizarre throughout, actually. The trip in the circumstances in which we did the trip, because everybody was celebrating and staying home and we were trying to make peace in the context of where everybody was not interested in peace. They were interested in feasting, celebrating, and then uh, climbing that mountain in those scaring circumstances and then seeing a very old man there standing. First of all, I was surprised to see a man simply dressed with very simple Comorian jellaba, kind of jellaba, and a very light one, by the way, with his cap, you know, his Swahili hat, you know. And I could see his legs through the jellaba, through the, that uh, thing, you know. So he was skinny, simple, small man, humble, alone, absolutely alone. I could see nobody else. I've seen nobody in the house. Then when I started talking to him, he was reserved, you understand, because he could not believe that I was coming from the Organization of African Unity. 
it took me some time to convince him that I was the chef de cabinet of the Secretary General of the Organization of African Unity. He thought I was a French intelligence service agent, you know, uh, coming there to try to convince him to go to Madagascar. While we are genuinely, as the OEU, seeking to get them together in Madagascar to mediate a compromise so that he will return, not to stay to Madagascar, but to return to Comoros. Let's talk about what that compromise looked like, because you have a deposed president sitting in Réunion. You have government in Comoro who's now in power, who's deeply opposed to the former president coming back. So what did you do? There was a delegation. We brought a delegation of six ministers from the government that was sitting in Comoros after the coup d'etat. And the president requested some of his former aides and colleagues and ministers to join us. So we had the delegations of the, of the one hand, the president and delegation of the GUNT, the government of national unity or transition of Comoros. And of course, the delegation of Comoros came with the clear instructions that you could agree on anything, but the president should not return. That was the red line. And I remember, you know, we were negotiating, and then at some point we reached the deadlock. And I remember some of my colleagues saying, okay, that's, that's, there's nothing we can do with them. Let's go. Okay, that's the end of it. And then I remember giving it a try, another try. I tried another round of discussions just beyond what we thought was a deadlock. I just give it a try. And then after a while, after arguing, arguing, we find out that everybody was accepted what seemed to be reasonable to all. After all, you understand. And then we made them sign and we signed an agreement. And that agreement, if I understand correctly, was one of the very first power sharing agreements. Talk to us about how significant that was. To the best of my memory, it is the first power sharing agreement brokered directly by the OAU. I think there were some others in West Africa, on Liberia and Sierra Leone, but in early 1996, I think one of the very first power sharing arrangement brokered by the Organization of African Unity. Because the agreement provided that essentially the president will go back and assume his position as the president, but he will surrender all, most, not all, most of his executive powers to the government. Well, it seems that you had more than one experience of mediating around coups. And I'd like to take you forward to Guinea now in West Africa in 2008 where President Lansana Conte dies after almost 25 years in power. A military coup follows the next day. How did you get involved? That was my first engagement as United Nations official, because by then I became the special envoy of the Secretary General of the United Nations for West Africa. It was dangerous because the then president, I mean the head of state, Dadis Kamara, was established in military camp. So whenever you go and see him, you go through soldiers. And to be honest, they are not disciplined soldiers. Really, you could see some disorder in the camps. And then when uh, he, he was uh, injured, eventually and removed from there, and then his deputy took over, General Sekouba, it was the same. He took just another military camp, smaller one, but military camp. And I remember one time visiting during the presidential election, there were a series of abuses of human rights, on a number of people in, in the country, and then I had to go and see him because I had seen some disturbing pictures of people having severely tortured by the Berre Rouge, by the army. And I went to see him and to bring this to his attention. And I went there, I stayed there for a number of hours because I was so firm, together with the representative of the African Union who was uh, with me, and we were so shocked by what we have seen 
that want him to discuss the matter. And then he had to call his minister of the interior, who was not there. So it took us a long time to wait for the minister of the interior to join us. So we stayed there a couple of hours. And when eventually I left the office, when we discussed with the president, when the, the minister arrived and we left, I looked at my BlackBerry and I realized that there was a message from my security officer who stayed outside. And he told me, let's go, sir. Let's go. Let's go. out. Let's go, sir. This place is dangerous. Because he has seen the movement outside the door, actually, you could see when the people were coming to the office of the president, you see people harassed and, you know, some emotions, commotions there. And he was worried for your safety? He was worried for my safety. And how did you convince him to organize the first ever democratic elections in Guinea, having seized power by force? The guy is just basic soldier who found himself at the head of the nation. He had very, no strong views, actually, on this matter. So I had to work on the president, and somebody has helped me a lot is Thibault. Somebody called Thibault. He's now actually in the current government as the, one of the advisors of the president in Guinea, who was also the advisor of that general. He was a very close friend to him, I understand. And he was one of his main advisors in the presidency. And through him, I managed to convince the president. And I stayed three or four days in Conakry till I got the copy of the decree, which is the decision of the president, calling for elections on a certain day. And for a listener who might be curious how you convince someone who's taken power by force to agree to elections where they might lose that power, how would you explain it to them? My experience in dealing with coup d'etats in West Africa as UN representative, but also in coup d'etats as the African Union, by then there was a lot of progress, very firmness in the African Union on issue of coups. They knew that they could not stand for a long time. From 1995-96, where we had to, we dealt with the first coup d'etat in Comoros, till we got a policy in 1999-2000. Actually, the policy was adopted at the OU summit in Lomé in 2000. There was a gap of uh, four years before the first involvement in the coup d'etats. After the election, the coup d'etats after 2000, the military knew that they cannot stay for a long time. Because you had set a a norm Absolutely and a policy a from the African Union that this simply wouldn't be tolerated. Absolutely. But the prime minister, being a civilian and uh, coming from the opposition, thought this arrangement with somebody coming from a military coup, as a general coup, as the head of state and the prime minister running with executive powers, running the government, could stay for three or four years. So I managed to convince, because you have to argue, I had to make a lot of promises to the president that, you know, he's... Uh, how will be remembered, how will the trust committee will, will recognize him. And after that, it was true, because after that, you remember, the African Union suggested to him a position as a special envoy for, I think, small arms and something like that. They gave him a position of special envoy in recognition of his collaboration and cooperation during the transition. You've had so much experience all across the continent. Let's move to East Africa and Burundi specifically. Yeah. And in April 2015, uh, Pierre Nkurunziza decides to run for a third term as yeah. president, triggering protests. And it seems that no one in the UN wanted the job of mediator, but you uh, ended up accepting it. How did that happen? Actually, I did not accept it. I found myself in a situation where I had no other option than being a facilitator because I just joined the region, the Great Lakes region, as special envoy of the Secretary General. I paid two visits to President Nkurunziza. 
In both visits, the first one was a courtesy one, but I managed to convey a message of uh, concern uh, of the international community and then advising the president in that in whatever he will do, he will bear in mind the stability because the country had a couple of years, I think 10 years of stability, and then we care for the stability. So whatever he does in the future, he will care for the continued stability of his country. In the second visit, I conveyed the message with the stronger emphasis, and I think uh, I almost tell him, short of telling him, Mr. President, you should not stand for election, but I told him something that meant that. Because he, he was running for a third term, which wasn't uh, constitutionally not, allowed. He was not yet formally candidate. It was just a few months before. So I could not tell him, Mr. President, you could not stand. But I told him something that meant that. Because just when I left the president, somebody called me from his office. And he told me, well, the president uh, did receive your message. But what are the intentions of the Secretary General? I explained to him what we had in mind. Because really, we thought that the president was a young man. And uh, there was uh, ambiguity, and it seemed clearly to be against the Constitution for him standing for a third term. And this will clearly create some divisions in the country. So it would have been advisable for the president not to stand. And then I told him, by the way, what do you think yourself of the situation? Because you know the context in Africa. He told me, well, it happens that I am one of those part of the CNDDFDD, which is the ruling party, that is totally opposed to the president standing for a third term which he saw was a risk for the stability of the country. So this is where I realized that the situation was really, really, very really serious. I was going to go for the third time, and I received the, I mean, I made the request, formally, obviously, as it happened in every visit, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs responded to me, saying that the president is waiting for me. And just one or two days before my trip, I received a note verbal saying that an urgent note verbal for the minister strongly advising me not to visit Burundi because the president is not available to receive me and that anyway would like me to postpone my visit. And so you get this note from the president's office which says, well, I may have seen you before, but you're essentially not welcome at the moment. But you didn't let that deter you, did you? The note was for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I was under strong pressure from my organization, the United Nations Department for Political Affairs and other individual members of the Council, insisting that it should go there. So nonetheless, I traveled because I'm a civil servant, I had to obey and I traveled. I traveled the same day where the Congress was taking place. So I arrived there unanimously. Nobody was expecting me. Of course, my UN colleagues met me and they went there and they wondered what to do because I was not expected. So nobody could meet me. So this is how, in circumstances in which I, I did my third trip to Bujumbura. So you arrive unofficially, despite the government saying that you're not particularly welcome. How on earth, in that context, did you get a, a dialogue going? They were planning, the UN office there, and the Minister of Interior were planning to organize jointly a meeting to assess the implementation of three documents that have signed the whole parties, opposition and governments have signed earlier about the conduct of election and other few other technical documents about the elections, which happens in most of the countries. And at some point they said, okay, now the facilitation, and they looked around and they saw me and they said, well, let's ask the UN special envoy to be the facilitator. From there, we moved to the UN compound and we started the dialogue. So you seize the initiative, but then, unfortunately, things deteriorate for you personally afterwards, because one month after you're chosen to mediate in that meeting, 
The opposition writes a letter asking for your resignation, which eventually takes place in June. How did you feel when you learned of that? I felt bad. What was painful to me is that so close for an agreement, I thought that you could have spared this suffering, these last years of suffering for this country. Imagine how many people killed, how many people human rights violated, how many people imprisoned, how many people in exile, politically or as refugees. All that could be spared. The people who are behind this letter against me were clearly people that didn't want to have Nkurunziza in any way in a third term. And the easiest way is to remove their confidence to the facilitator. I can hear a tone of regret in your voice, you know, having dedicated your life to peace on the continent of Africa and been involved in so many complex negotiations. What would you say is your biggest regret looking back? My main problem is with governance and leadership. When I was the Commission for Peace and Security of the African Union, and when we have established the agenda for peace, the architecture for peace and security, we managed to get partnerships for peace with strong partners supporting us politically, but also financially. I thought that the, we should invest in long-term prevention of conflict through governance and leadership. And this is where we are still fighting, I think. Well, I hope it's a good time to be asking for your reflections because I understand like most of us, you're living your life under lockdown at the moment because of the pandemic. Yeah. But unlike most of us, you're using this time to write a book or more than one book. When you look back on your career, if you had to sum up your approach to mediation, what would it be? Tenacity. In all my successful, even those where I have not been successful, I think the things you can make only progress if you show tenacity. That means you should not give up at the first difficulty. Because bringing together to peace is not easy. Breaking the situation is easy, but putting it together is very difficult. We have seen conflicts being exacerbated because of external influences. So that's why the focus on African solutions to African problems but in stating that very clearly didn't mean that we should work in isolation. And in finding those solutions to Africa's conflicts, you know, you've made a special effort in your work to bring the voices of women into negotiations. Why has that been important to you? Throughout my uh, career, I realized the importance of having women involved on issues that we are dealing with. In one instance, I was the international facilitator of a dialogue in Guinea in 2013-14. There was the high tension. By instinct, I said, well, there must be some women associations. I would like to get women associations involved. And I worked closely with them, and they played a very important role during especially the demonstrations by the opposition and the reaction by the police. And there were a lot of people killed, both from the police, but especially mainly from the demonstrators. And the women played an important role in moving around in Conakry, uh, meeting with leaders. Some instances I had to help them to get access to the leaders of the political parties to appeal to them for calm and for avoiding violence as much as possible. Young women and girls should, uh, should not be inhibited by the omnipresence of men in society, in political and development spheres. There is no future for the continent without the full contribution and the involvement of women. A continent like Africa cannot afford living 
aside, out of the process, half or more than half of its energies and resources. There is a reservoir of talent in the women that needs to be used for the progress of our continent. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador, for sparing your time. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That was Ambassador Said Jinnit in the Mediator's Studio, a new Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please do recommend it to a friend. You can find other episodes at osloforum.org and if you have questions about the podcast or about any of the issues it raises, send them to me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. That's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.